about 15 years ago, uh, Stephen Colbert, y'all know who he is? Comedy Central, comedian, news anchor. Okay, if you're tracking with me, he interviewed a Georgia congressman about the policies that this particular congressman was making, uh, which at the time was sort of none. He hadn't quite made a law yet his time in in Congress. But uh, the reason he was on a show is uh, Colbert wanted to ask him about the bill that he co-sponsored to mandate that the Ten Commandments uh, be publicly displayed in federal judicial buildings. Now, the comedy happened when Colbert asked this congressman to name the Ten Commandments on TV. And yeah, it got awkward, okay? This guy goes, uh, you want me to name them? <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's, it's just ten, right? It couldn't be that hard. And so the guy says, don't kill? <laughs> and Colbert goes, like this, one. And he says, don't steal, two. Don't lie. And that's where it stopped. That was all he had, right? So congressman co-sponsoring a bill to mandate the, the Ten Commandments being publicly displayed could only name three of ten. I don't think most Americans could do a whole lot better than that. In fact, right about the same time that that interview happened, another study came out, a report that uh, most American, more Americans, I should say, could recite the ingredients to a McDonald's Big Mac than could name the Ten Commandments, right? This is the state of the world we live in. But who can blame people, right? Despite being the most influential code of law throughout the world in all of recorded history, we have to wonder, have the Ten Commandments lost their appeal? Have they uh, stopped applying to us? Are they just an ancient artifact? You know, on the one hand, you've got our culture that is on this trajectory of human rebellion that more and more wants to reject things like the Ten Commandments because they sort of hate anybody, especially God, telling them what they can and cannot do. This is sort of just in us. It's not just even people out there. It's actually people here in us. This is part of our sin nature that just rebels against that, right? And so that's the trajectory of our culture. So, of course, we would want to move away from the Ten Commandments if that were true. Now, on the other hand, we also have streams of influence in the church and churches across our world who are minimizing the importance of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard it said like this. Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you agree with it. Listen, we certainly have a faith that is by grace, right? We, we come to salvation not by works. This is not what we're saying at all. But I love how Jen Wilkin says this, that relationships and rules, relationship to God and others and Christianity and rules like the Ten Commandments, are not enemies. They're not opposed to each other. They're actually friends. This is what she said. She said, Christianity is absolutely about relationship with God and others. And because this statement is true, Christianity is also unapologetically about rules. For rules show us how to live in those relationships. So rules enable relationships to flourish. Uh, Last week, I was over on our Longview campus, and I preached a sermon that uh, is a sort of prequel to this sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And so if you missed that or you were here last week and I was there and you didn't hear that sermon, let me just encourage you, go check it out. It's going to establish for you sort of the grace 
that underlies all of the commandments. Because we tend to think that grace and law are kind of opposed to each other, right? That law is this Old Testament God that's full of wrath and that the New Testament God is full of grace and he's the one who really loves us and wants to set us free from all that bad stuff. But the God of the Bible is the same God throughout and he is always been a God of grace in every single covenant that he establishes with people and by the way he always pursues covenant relationship with people who have been unfaithful to him he does it by grace through faith this is the way it's always worked so last week I preached a message about Exodus 19 at the base of Mount Sinai what happens to God's people before the Ten Commandments are given. So it's a little bit of a prequel to this message where we establish that we can't understand commandments until we fully comprehend covenant, right? That we will always be frustrated by rules until we understand how God relates. So maybe you want to check that out as just to sort of refresh and build the foundation for this sermon series. I'd encourage you to do that. You can find it at moberly.org slash podcasts. Uh, but the principle of God being the same throughout is, is true, that God always establishes covenant relationship with people by grace through faith. In fact, Jesus, if that were not true, would have rejected the Ten Commandments. Jesus, if that were not true, Jesus would have abolished the Ten Commandments. He would have come along and said, hey, there's not really any need for that anymore, so just forget about it. I'm going to show you the new way. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus comes along, affirms the commandments, even elevates the commandments, and then expands on the commandments. I'm thinking in particular about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons ever preached in the history of the world, probably the greatest. And he says things like, for example, regarding murder. He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, and what's he going to say? Is he going to tell us that doesn't matter anymore? No, he says, what I tell you, you should not even be angry at your brother. And what Jesus is saying is that the most important thing about the law, the most important thing about the commandments, is not what you do or don't do. It's about what it is doing in you. This is the trajectory. That the commandments aren't just to exist outside of us, but they are to move inside of us and change us from the inside out as we relate to God in covenant relationship. The story of the congressman is a perfect illustration of this because it doesn't really matter if the Ten Commandments are posted outside of any building if they aren't taking root inside our hearts. Regardless of what your view is on the Ten Commandments from your past, it's worth looking at now. It's worth taking seriously now. It's worth digging in deep to understand what God intends for them now. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Right at the beginning of your Bible, you've got the book of Genesis, the beginnings of all things. And then the next story is the story of Exodus, where God frees his people from slavery in Egypt and establishes covenant relationship with him. And what we're going to see today, launching into this series... It's sort of the three things that God has designed the commandments to accomplish, to be. Why do the Ten Commandments exist? And then we're going to just sort of dip our toe in the commandments and cover the first commandment, okay? So it sounds like a lot, but we're going to get there. So Exodus chapter 20, if you're there in your Bible, I want you to look right at the beginning of that chapter with me. If not, the words will be on the screen for you. Exodus chapter 20 starts by saying, Then God spoke all these words. 
And then I want to land on this first phrase. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. What a relational phrase. Even for God to begin with the word I. That tells us that he wants to be known as he knows. So something as small as that. But what is God trying to get at? I think this phrase teaches us the first thing about the commandments and the law is that the law shows us God's design for life. God's design for life. How did I get there? It all comes down to the names God uses as he speaks to his people. It says, God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God. That word Lord, that name Lord is the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's the name God would use on the mountain uh, years ago when he introduced himself to Moses through a burning bush. Moses said, who are you? Who am I supposed to say that I've talked to? And he says, I am. I am that I am. I am self-existent. I am self-sufficient. I don't need anybody else, uh, but I'm also present and personal. I am Yahweh. This is the name that the Israelite people, Yahweh, would come to embrace as a holy and significant name that always referred them back to the idea that God wanted a relationship with them. And so what a way to start the Ten Commandments, that God is relational, that God designed us for relationship with him. Even just to double down on this idea of design is the name God here. It says, I am the Lord which, by the way, if he had stopped there, would, been, would have been terrifying. Even the Israelites on Mount Sinai were terrified of his power. But had he stopped at, I am the Lord, it would have been like this, I'm going to strike you with lightning kind of thing. But he says, I am the Lord, your God. And so he completes the circle of relationship in this beginning statement. And he says, your God, I am the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim, it's the name that God was introduced to us as at the time of creation. Creation. That God is all-powerful. That God is sovereign. That he always has been and always will be. And that he enacted his power by his breath to breathe all things into existence. Meaning, God designed you. The law reveals God's design the way that life works best. And he can do that because he is the designer. He designed you for relationship. And in fact, Genesis tells us that he designed you in his image. Meaning, you're not just a random creation. You were cast in his mold. Your life was intended to reflect him perfectly. Now, sin entered the world through man's disobedience and twisted all that up. And now when we look at humanity, probably the first thing we see is not the image of God. That's something we have to look deeply for because we have to see past all the sin, right? And so now we know sin has twisted and tainted everything about creation, including us. But God's design was the way that life was intended to work best. It's how life existed in the Garden of Eden when he was the God for Adam and Eve, and he lived with them and related to them. This was what he designed. 
this design of the law was God's invitation for people to reclaim that image, to live into the way God designed us to live, the way life should work best. And it's his names that reveal that to us. This is the way he designed us. The only way, by the way, is his design that we will truly flourish as humanity. Uh, this just reminded me of Jill bringing home a board game the other night for us to play. Uh, we enjoy board games. They're kind of fun, card games, things like that. We love having fun playing games. So she brings, she's had her eye on this game. It's full of mosaic tiles. And uh, every time we go look at like the game aisle to see if there's something our kids would like, she's always drawn to it. Well, finally she just buys it and brings it home, right? And so we're gonna play it. We're opening up the box and it is just like, it's like hieroglyphics to me, right? It's these mosaic titles. It's these, you know, personal boards and things in the middle and, and a bag of, you know, little tiles. There's no numbers. There's no letters. There's, I don't, how does this thing work? And we're just looking at it going like, uh, this is wild and crazy. So what do we do? We reach for the instructions. Now, men, I know, we don't like to do that, right? But we reach for the instructions because the designer of the game wanted to give us a framework for how the game was meant to be enjoyed and best played. And once we did that, we played three rounds of it. And it was fun and competitive, and it was kind of like cutthroat there for a little bit, but it was good. And that's what the commandments are to our world. It's God's design for how life works best, and it's to be best enjoyed. It's also a sign pointing to salvation. The law is a sign pointing to salvation. If we keep reading in Exodus chapter 20, we see, I am the Lord your God. And then he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Uh, several years ago, Jill's friend asked her to paint some signs. I recognize I'm talking about Jill a lot because she's awesome. But uh, I wanted you to see these signs that uh, her friend wanted her to paint for their house. They put these in her back in their backyard. It, it's all the places that they've lived, and you'll notice that's a lot of places. There's even places you can't see, right? That are other places. But if you're a golfer, right away you're probably seeing St. Andrews. Oh, we want to switch back. Okay, Argentina. But St. Andrews was there. Scotland. I mean, how cool is that? Like golfers, these people, these are like Texans. They lived there, right? You got Austin College Station, so you know that's probably speaking to some of your hearts in different levels. Uh, you got the Dominican Republic, island life. I mean, how cool is this? And they're all pointing in the general geographic direction of those places with the miles and everything, how far away they are, etc. Well, if the commandments were on signs, if there was an arrow sign, ten signs, one with each commandment, they would all be pointing the same direction. They would all be pointing toward Jesus Christ. Because the law is a sign pointing to salvation. God reminds the people of who he is to them, freeing them from slavery in Egypt, bringing them up out of Egypt. Now this isn't old history to them. This is seven weeks old. Can you imagine needing to be reminded of that after seven weeks? That God is the God who brings you out of the land of Egypt? Their whole lives had been transformed and changed because of this salvation that God had brought them from, too. 
And now he's giving them a design for the way life works best. And not only is he pointing backwards to their deliverance from Egypt, he's pointing forward because God established a relationship with Israel, not just to free Israel, but that through Israel and the nation of Israel, God would provide a better savior that would perfectly fulfill the entire law. That would not only bring salvation to the Israelites, but would make salvation available to the entire world. So even the commandments are a sign pointing us to salvation. The commandments point forward to Jesus just as much as they point backwards to salvation from Egypt. But now that we're on the other side of history, they point us back to Jesus. You see, each command is a reminder that we cannot keep God's law perfectly. As much as we try, we will never be able to succeed. We could strive and strive and strive and we would not get past number one. We cannot keep God's law. We need a savior outside of ourselves. We need a rescuer to deliver us from the slavery of sin. And Jesus became that rescuer because he kept the law perfectly. He became the only acceptable sacrifice to be offered to God in exchange for sin. Jesus did that for us for those of us, all of us, who cannot keep the law. So God brings us out of the land. God establishes the law as a sign pointing to salvation. And then finally, the law is, a, is meant to refine the Christian. It's a design for how life works best. It's a sign pointing to salvation, and it's meant to refine the Christian. Once the Christian is free from sin, then what? Did you notice that phrase and how it almost sounds redundant that in verse 2, that God brought them out of the land of Egypt and out of the place of slavery? Because it's not just where they existed, it was also how they existed. That God wanted them to no longer be slaves, but instead to live in freedom. When we apply that to our lives, what we see is that the commandments aren't how we break free from sin, but instead they're how we live in freedom. A lot of people think this is true too. They look at Christianity and they go, it's just a bunch of rules, right? And if I, can, if I wanna be a part of that, I just have to accomplish all those rules and then maybe, just maybe God will accept me. But God does the opposite. God gives us his grace first. He rescues us, right? He redeems us. He gives us a salvation that we could not earn, that we did not deserve, just like he brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt. They didn't bring that upon themselves. God gave it to them as a gift. All they had to do was receive it by faith and walk out. The same way is true with our salvation. God gives it to us as a gift. All we have to do is receive it by faith. And then he gives us the grace of showing us how to live in that freedom. I love what Kevin DeYoung, author, says about this. He says, God is not trying to crush us with red tape and regulations. The Ten Commandments are not prison bars. They're traffic laws. They're, they're things that keep us safe, right? They keep us go in the right direction. They keep us from harming others, etc. And then he says, not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. Hundreds of years after the Ten Commandments are given on Mount Sinai, a prophet would be raised up by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 31 would prophesy to the God's people 
that this covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone would not be the final covenant. In fact, he had already made a covenant with David. And then King David, that is, which would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus also. But Jeremiah refers all the way back to Mount Sinai. And he says this new covenant is not a covenant written on tablets of stone, but instead he will take his teachings and write them on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. He's talking about the covenant relationship we have through Jesus. Because Jesus embodied the law perfectly. He embodied the ways of God perfectly. Jesus is the only human who ever truly flourished after the fall of man. And that's what allowed him to become the sacrifice for us, but also to lead us into a life of flourishing as we follow him as Lord and leader of our life. So we don't seek to obey the commandments in order to be made right with God. Jesus did that for us. We now seek to obey the commandments so that we might take the shape of Jesus and enjoy life the way only he could to this point. As we follow Jesus, this is what happens to us. It's like how over thousands of years, a rock formation just gathers sediment and just collects and it becomes craggy and hard and jagged. But what would happen if you take that rock and you put it in a stream? The invitation of Jesus is to take our craggy, hard, jagged selves and to place them under the flow of the living water of Jesus inside the riverbanks of the law, the Ten Commandments, so that he can wash over us and gradually erode the hard edges and jaggedness away so that our sin would not be what people see first, but then we could be restored to the smooth edges of the image of God, the way he intended us to be. So, we are refined by the Ten Commandments. So these are the three. It's our design, the best way to live. It's an invitation of God into a way of life like he intended it. It's been as a sign to point us forward and back to Jesus at all times and a way to refine us as Christians. And Jesus was asked in Matthew 22 by someone who was trying to trick him what the most important commandment was. Uh, it's interesting how he responds. I don't know if you noticed, there's 613 commands in the Old Testament. Uh, 365, I understand, which are negative commands. Don't do this. That means one for every day. There's something to, to not do. And the others are positive, right? So... 613 total, and this person asked Jesus in order to trap him, what's the most important command? Well, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, which is something Moses says right after the Ten Commandments are given for the second time to the second generation of Israelites about to enter the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus' quote of it says, the, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, all your mind and all your strength excuse me soul deuteronomy says strength this is what jesus says and he says i know you only asked me for one but the second is just like it and he says the second is love your neighbor as yourself so as we kind of talk about what the ten commandments are and why they exist 
just notice what Jesus does. He summarizes the Ten Commandments when he's asked what's the most important command. Because the Ten Commandments are ten, right? You can name them one through ten. But you can also look at them as two sets of five. Tables, we call them. Or maybe you think of Moses carrying tablets down the mountain. The first five are essentially ways to love God. You can look at them in Exodus 20. You look one through five. It's about loving God. The second, six through ten, are about loving your neighbor. Isn't that amazing how Jesus just wraps them all up into these greatest command and the second's just like it? He's pointing them back, the validity of the Ten Commandments, the power that they have in our lives. But even beyond that, he emphasized loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul as the greatest commandment. Why? Because the Ten Commandments aren't just ten. They aren't just two sets of five. They also can be boiled down to one. And the Ten Commandments can all be summarized in the first commandment which is, do not have other gods before me. Every other command comes under the umbrella of this first command. Do not have other gods before me or besides me. So first commandment, let's just dip our toe in here. We're going to have several weeks of Ten Commandments after this, okay? So, so gear up, be ready. Remember, design, sign, refine, okay? This statement, do not have other gods besides me, has been countercultural for over 3,500 years. It has never fit in any culture. It's always shocking and incredibly difficult to maintain. Why? Well, in ancient times, it was common to ascribe power to gods. Because there was an awareness of a higher power. We know, like, if it rains, I didn't make it rain. You didn't make it rain. Something made it rain, okay? And so that's simplifying it a bit. But there's a recognition that there is a higher power. So to say that there was only one God, and that one God had all power, was nonsense to every other culture. And the Israelites, having come out of 400 years in Egypt where they worshipped lots and lots of gods, would have been more well-versed in polytheism, this worship of many gods, than in monotheism, which was the history of their ancestors all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? They would have been more well-versed in polytheism than monotheism. Well, in Texas today, you will not find many people who claim to be polytheistic. I'm sure there are some. Shout out to Austin, Texas, right? So polytheists, maybe a few. You'll probably find lots of people, like if you asked at lunch today at Juicy's or wherever you're going, you asked, hey, do you, be would you believe in God? They would probably affirm a version of monotheism, that there is one God, which is what we believe. There's an increasing number of people in Texas who ascribe to atheism, or atheism, we like to call it, which is that there are no gods. But here's the point of this first command, that no matter what you say you believe, the reality of it is that counterfeit gods are being worshipped by people in every category, every day. Counterfeit, false gods. J.I. Packer named a few of these. He said they are the great gods of sex, shekels and stomach they are 
the enslaving trio of pleasure, possessions, and position. And now you probably see where your cravings and desires take you. They don't take you to the one true God, do they? They pull for your affection. They lead you away from him. And so God in his design, pointing you to Jesus and refining your heart, says, do not have other gods besides me. They are counterfeits. Anything your heart may be drawn to outside of me will never fulfill you. You know how to spot a counterfeit God? Here's how. In ancient times, like we talked about, they would observe a higher power maybe at work in the rain because they needed their crops to grow, okay? So just simplifying it a bit, but they would look at and go, well, we planted all these crops. We really need it to rain. What can we do to influence rain to come? And in their ingenuity and probably something that's built into the core of who they are, they started making sacrifices, like animal sacrifices. And then in the worst cases, like child sacrifices, other human sacrifices, abhorrent acts, right? And they would make these sacrifices and these rituals in order to appease some, you know, imagined deity that might make it rain on their crops. And then you know what happened? It rained. Like that year. And so what did they do the next year? Well, they repeat the process. What we did must have worked. So I'm going to do it again. I'm going to make these sacrifices. I'm going I'm to call out to this whatever deity I've named it. I'm going to do this and that. And as long, as long as I follow the formula, it should rain again. But then what happened? It didn't rain. Well, at that point, you think they would have gone, maybe we were wrong. But they don't. They double down. They do more. They add sacrifices. They give more of themselves away in hopes to somehow appease this counterfeit imagined deity in that it might reign. And then maybe it does or maybe it doesn't. That's how counterfeit God works. God's work. And I think it sounds probably familiar to you, more familiar if I put it in maybe a modern context that helps us think about it in our terms. Let's think about money. I can work really hard to earn lots of money the American dream, right, to have lots of stuff, to get my big house, my nice car, uh, to, to make sure my family's taken care of, I can leave a legacy, etc., etc., etc. But what happens when the market turns and things go downhill? Well, it worked before. I guess I just need to work harder. I guess I need to put more hours in. Maybe spend less time with my family. I want you to read Sacrifice. I'm going to lay them down at the altar of this God of money, and I'm going to work harder. I'm going to sacrifice them. I'm going to get more, more jobs. I'm going to work two, three jobs. I'm going to start more businesses. I'm going to do this, that. I'm going to all, all to get this life that I want, right? And what happens is maybe it goes well, maybe it doesn't. When it even does go well, does money make you happy? No. We've proven that over and over again, yet we don't reject the premise. Instead, we continue to give more and more and more and more. And that's what a counterfeit God does. It requires more of you without ever returning on the promise. But you see how opposite that is of God? God who delivers the Israelites first. God who rescues his people, brings them out of slavery, and then invites them into a new way of living where they can truly flourish, we must reject counterfeit gods. If we don't, we are going right back into Egypt under Pharaoh's reign again.
to be slaves, slaves to sin. So the invitation is for God to, from God into a life how it's designed to work best. Over in Longview today, this is what Pastor Andrew is saying. I just had to steal it from him. God had brought his people out of Egypt. Now he wanted Egypt out of his people. This is what we're talking about. So what do we do? Well, before we do, we also have to understand this isn't a command of action as much as it is a command of relationship. Our translation says besides. You may have heard me say before. That's just because that's how I grew up learning it. Thou shalt not have any other God before me. Maybe that's the way you learned it as well. It doesn't matter which word you use. It's the same idea in Hebrew, which actually might be better read uh, that don't have any other gods in front of my face. Maybe you've said something like this. You going to say that to my face? Anybody said that to anybody? You don't have to admit it if you have. That's essentially what God is doing here. There are counterfeit gods out there pulling for your attention, vying for you. And if, if you go that direction, are you willing to do it in front of God's face? Well, the reality is you already have. He sees it all. He knows it all. This is how uh, one author describes it. He says it's like, it's like a husband bringing home another woman and introducing her to his wife, uh, saying, hey, this is someone that I intend to spend lots of time with, quality time with, time very similar to the time that you and I spend together. What should the woman say to that, the wife? Should she say, that's great, dear. I'm honored that I can still be part of your life. No, right? She should say, look, Buster, it's, it's me or her. Like, you don't get to split. You got to make a decision here. This is what God is saying. It's me, the one true God, who deserves all your life's attention and devotion and worship. Or it's the others. You can't have both. But that's what we strive for in our life. We like to have God in a nice little compartment, don't we, with all the other things that we love and worship. It's like when I grew up, my parents uh, loved the game Trivial Pursuit. We would play with my mom's side of the family. I'm not trivial. Uh, like, I don't know trivia. I would be the kid who, like, grew up, uh, you know, and a geography question would come up in the geography category, and I'd be like, pulling on my elementary school geography. Uh, I'm not quite good enough at that. Okay, don't get that one. Then, like, uh, the science category would come up, and I just... I'm pretty much shutting out. Like, I'm not there, okay? Uh, art, history, I'm going, uh, I, I, maybe I've heard of some of those people in the past, but sports and leisure, that's my category, okay? Like, I was going for that category. Whenever we rolled orange, I'm like, all right, sports and leisure, here we go. I know some stuff. I watch ESPN 14 hours a day, uh, so I can figure this out, okay? This is how I was as a, as a child. But God is not a trivial pursuit God, you know what Trivial Pursuit, you, you answer all the questions, you get to the middle, and you have this little circular thing that you have, and it like, looks like a pie. And every time you answer like the main question, you get to add that pie to your deal. Well, God is not a Trivial Pursuit God. He's not a God that rounds out our lives by simply giving him his slice of the pie. God is the whole thing. He started it, he created it, he designed it, he gives us the way to live in it, 
He invites us into it, and everything else comes under him, right? So, life works best when God is, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians, our all in all. I grew up singing that song in church in the 90s. You are my all in all. Didn't know what it meant. Now I'm getting a glimpse of what it means. And I want to live into that, that God is my all in all. So how do we do it? How do we live this out? Now we know what it means. Now we know what God's saying. How do we make it happen? I'm going to give you just a simple framework, but to set it up, I want to talk more about Jill. She's a great designer. I don't know if you know this by trade. She's a graphic designer. So she designs logos and brand identities and things like that. So she's an expert. Well, early on in our marriage, I learned something from her design world. Uh, And I'm going to butcher this maybe, Jill, so correct me later if I'm wrong. But here's what I understand. When you design a logo on a screen or on print or whatever it is, a logo, you have images, icons, words, whatever it is. But then around and behind that is what's called negative space. Like think about the letter O. You know, it's like a circle, but then there's stuff white around it, but there's also white in the middle. That's called negative space, okay? Now, a good designer like Jill can intentionally create negative space, not just to take away, but so as to elevate the positive space, the positive image. So it's intentional, What God does here in this command is he gives us our first negative command. Thou shalt not. But it's not to put you down. It's not to restrict your life or even just to take away. It's to intentionally create negative space so that we can elevate the positive image of God in our lives. So there is something we can do Yes, we reject counterfeit gods. But practically, how can we emphasize and elevate the positive image of God in us and live into a life of flourishing the way God designed? Uh, John Calvin, one of the great reformers in the church, gave this framework in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. He said there's four things you can do. Four churchy words, but I'm going to try to help them just kind of boil them down for you briefly. The first is adoration. Adoration. When you worship God alone, when you give him your time like you have today, this hour of your life, you are adoring God. And in particular, now that we know Jesus, we adore Jesus Christ. And that in turn makes all the other counterfeit gods fade away and elevates the image of God in our lives. But we don't do this just one hour a week, do we? We seek to be people who adore Jesus every moment of our lives and every choice you make that adores and praises Jesus in the highest place was also a decision to reject counterfeit gods. So we adore Jesus as our supreme Savior and Lord. Second is we trust We trust, we know that Christ is our surest source of life. Those those words, trust and surety, those are financial words. 
And so some of you finance people, you kind of understand these, but essentially what they mean is that there's a return on those investments, okay? Like, it's going to happen. So uh, you trust and know that Christ is your surest source of life. That means we count on him alone for salvation. That means one day when you stand before God and God says, uh, why do you deserve to be in my kingdom? And you go, because uh, I'm a good person. He's going to go, ah, that's not enough. You weren't a good person. Nobody was a good person. And when you go, well, I tried really hard, he's going to go, yeah, not hard enough, right? You can't try hard enough. But if you just say, Jesus, he says, you're in my kingdom. Because Jesus is where we put all our eggs in one basket for salvation. Now, finances, you want to diversify, right? When it comes to spirituality, you better Put it all there in one. Unify it. Everything you trust in, if it says Jesus, it's enough. And it'll have a return. Jesus is worth our trust. He will come through. Every time you make a choice to trust Jesus, you distrust counterfeit gods. Last or third, excuse me, is invocation. Invocation. We know from Jesus that we are to invoke his name as we specifically pray to God. That if we ask anything in his name, it'll be given to us. But invocation simply means to seek Christ as our greatest advocate. To know Jesus is by the Father's side advocating for you, praying for you, defending your case to the judge. Every time the judge and God the Father might look at you and say you are sinful and deserving of punishment, Jesus stands in the gap for you and says, no, because that person's trust is in me. Now I have taken their punishment. They are free. They have my righteousness. They are no longer sinners in the eyes of God because of Jesus, because he's your advocate. And so we invoke his name, we call to him, we learn to turn to God in every circumstance, that if we face a problem in life, we look to God for the answer, that we face a time of just difficulty, we look to God for joy, we face a time where like after college, we don't know what we're gonna do, we look to God for a purpose. Everywhere else we look is counterfeit. It won't lead you to fulfillment, only God through Christ, will lead you to fulfillment. And then finally, simply, thanksgiving. It's just an act of thanksgiving. This is where we find that all of our grace for life comes through Christ. We recognize this, that, that he's the reason for our good days and he is our resiliency in bad days. There's always a reason to thank Jesus. And when you build a life of gratitude, your attitude towards everything else changes. Jesus is elevated. This is how we live out God above all. This is how God designed us to flourish. So the question today is, are you flourishing? Man, this is a tough one because I, I, I get to hear a lot of stories in ministry. And then not only that, I go through my own stuff. And there's not a lot of people out there flourishing. But the promise of God is that if we live into his design, underneath the auspices of our Savior Jesus, who is our salvation, and we are continually refined in his way of living, then we will flourish again the way God intended us 
to live in the beginning before sin tainted and twisted everything. That's the vision. And so if at whatever level we are not flourishing is the level we have not fully yielded to Jesus as Lord. So the challenge today is this. If you're not flourishing, where's your salvation? I want to invite you to put salvation, put faith in Jesus today for salvation. He is the only way. Some of you in the room have already done that and you go, but life is still hard. I just want to remind you that you are being refined and that God is good. He is softening your edges, smoothing you out, moving you towards flourishing. And it won't always feel awesome. Sometimes it feels like discipline, but his end is good. In fact, it reminds me of some of the songs we've been singing today. Revelation chapter seven, this is what happens at the throne of God as he is God above all. Revelation seven eleven. All the all the angels stood around the throne, along with the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, "Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God, forever and ever." Amen. Turn to Jesus today. Because one day, he's the only one that we will ever be able to turn to. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us in the Ten Commandments. Your grace toward us through Jesus. God, the goal of being more like him, which leads us into your presence to enjoy life the way you intended it. We long for you to work in us through these commandments, to shape us to become more like you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.